For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You know, that's Jeremiah 29, 11. Everybody's favorite verse. I mean, I've been in a lot of meetings where I've, you know, asked, hey, what's your favorite verse? And, and so many people, you know, cite that one. But let me read a little bit of the context of it. And uh, this is going to take a couple of episodes, if not more than a couple, to kind of unpack. But let's look at Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people, people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to, I can't pronounce some of these names, but Elisah, son of Shaphan, to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, it said, now here's the text of the letter that he sends to the, uh, the exiles that had already gone into captivity in Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Quote, build houses and settle down, Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper." Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Here's verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will answer you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, you know, not to be a jerk about it, I mean, because I, I really hate Christian jerks. Well, you know, let me rephrase that. I really don't like it when Christians act like jerks. So, not to be a jerk about almost everything I've ever heard or read uh, about this chapter, 
especially verse 11, is a, it, it's kind of a mantra for a lot of populist prosperity preachers. God has plans for us, they say, which are, you know, prop primarily about prospering us. That is, you know, making us wealthy and healthy. And though I'm I'm not opposed to either of those qualities, nor do I think that God has no interest in our well-being or our bank bank balance. But I don't think we can justifiably extrapolate automatic health and wealth from this passage or the Bible's message as a whole, frankly. So I tell you what, let me begin with some backstory about Babylon. Mostly, I take this mostly from Jeremiah, Daniel, and the books, book of Revelation. And, but as you know, a cursory reading of the book of Jeremiah seems to indicate these things. Let me just kind of give you a, uh, you know, a sound bite, and then I'll just kind of unpack it a little bit. Uh, so God sent his prophets to warn the relentlessly stubborn and disobedient Jews that they were, they were headed for Babylonian domination. They were going to go to Babylon. They turned, you know, a deaf ear and, and God, what does he always do? He kept his promise. He sent them into Babylon, into an unfamiliar country with an unholy culture for an entire generation, 70 years. But mercifully, he provided them instructions on how to live while they were there and not to lose hope of someday, you know, coming back home. His, his directives for how to conduct themselves in a foreign land in such a way as to, to make it a better place by serving and reaching foreigners kind of sets the stage for what I think us Jesus followers living in our present day are supposed to do in our Babylon. Okay, let me just kind of bullet point it. Babylon began as Babel in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where they were trying to, to, to be great without God and even greater than God. So they made this, this tower, and I'll unpack this in a future episode, but... It was all about their pride and self-will. Let us make a name for ourselves. Secondly, Babylon is usually staged in the Bible as a bad place populated with bad people, sinful people. It's a symbol throughout the scripture of sin and self. Three, God used Babylon to punish the Jews for their centuries of sin. And he sent prophets with warning after warning, and they shined them on every time. Four, Jeremiah told his people to submit to Babylon and when they, when they came to conquer. Not to fight. Don't fight back. This is God's will. This is God's judgment. But there's something going to be good in it, so don't fight. Whatever number we're on now, five. A bunch of false prophets told the Jews to fight back. To, to fight Babylon and that God was going to give them victory over their enemies. Then six, uh, Jeremiah told them to settle and bring shalom to Babylon while they were there and that their stay is going to be 70 years. No matter how you live, no matter what you do, it's going to be 70 years, a generation, and then they would go back to their land. 
7, Jeremiah also predicted the fall of Babylon. And at the end of the 70 years, they're going to get the hell out of there. 8, and lastly, Daniel, who had been in Babylon for most of the time that the Jews were captive uh, there, serving under what kings of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belshazzar, Darius. Uh, Daniel read Jeremiah's letter and, and had calculated the years up, and he realized that they were about at the end of the 70 years, so he went to praying. I think you can find that in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, that's just kind of backstory. That doesn't take you <clears throat> into the future and what Revelation and Peter says about Babylon and other New Testament passages, but what's that have to do with us? What's Babylon have to do with us New Testament followers of Jesus? Well, in the New Testament, there's an implied connection between our experience and and that of the exiled Jews in Jeremiah's day. Peter's epistles and John's revelation are the places where it's more than just implied. I mean, it's spelled out. In fact, in some future studies, I intend to travel through the entire first epistle of Peter and and the 17th and 18th uh, chapters of Revelation in order to uh, establish the point of us as exiles here in our present-day Babylon. Suffice it to say now, uh, let me just refer to a few of the passages, like in 1 Peter, for instance. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and some versions say exiles scattered throughout. Verse 17 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Foreigners. Chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 1 Peter 5, 13. He says at the end of the epistle, she who is in Babylon, probably a a code word for Jerusalem or the, 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 the sinful culture that they lived in, but he uses Babylon, interestingly enough. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And then rather than quote the entire 18th chapter Revelation, read that on your own, but let me just summarize it now and, then, and I'll unpack it in the future. Babylon, in Revelation 18, represents uh, an arrogant, godless human culture that's about to fall. And it's, it's going to run its course, and God is going to set a match to it and replace it with something much, much better that he calls the New Jerusalem. So Babylon is going to be replaced with the, the New Jerusalem. But in the meantime, if you read through this chapter, you see, but in the meantime, we, we are supposed to live in Babylon without assimilating to Babylonian ways. In other words, we, we have our own countercultural ways that influence Babylonian culture in the hopes of introducing as many, I'm going to call them Babylonians, as we can to our God.
I don't know what you think of the book of Revelation, but I believe that John's visions are about the final days of human history, but they're also about all the days leading up to those days. So while it, you know, it predicts of a time in the future of all other times, it's, it's obvious to me that it also applies to each time before that time. So, I, I mean, I think history contains the last time. The last time contains all of history. So anyway, when we get to those chapters in Revelation, I'll try to unpack that a little bit more clearly. But <clears throat> I, I want you to know that I'm not claiming that there's some sort of one-to-one correlation between Babylon then and where we live now, as though the Bible teaches some sort of exact relationship between then and now. It's more of a parallel. It's kind of a, sort of a parable. It, it's, a, it's a metaphor, but it's a, it's a supple metaphor, not a frozen one, if you get my drift. In other words, I get a clear sense that we 21st century Christians live as exiles in our own Babylon. We're in the kingdom and we're waiting for the kingdom at the same time. So there's going to be a day when our waiting will be over and the kingdom will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But in the meantime, I think we're supposed to bless Babylon. So how do we do that? I mean, how were we supposed to relate to Babylon? How does it affect us? And how are we supposed to affect it? I mean, because this is what I'm after here. I, I think we got to know how to live in these last days. So many people talk about the last days, but what are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live in these days? Whether we're in the last of the last days. You know, when I say last days, you should know that the New Testament speaks of the last days and the last of the last days. And I don't know if we're in the last of the last days, but, but it sure is later than it's ever been before. I mean, I don't know, but maybe Jesus will come tomorrow. But whether he does or he doesn't, the question is, how are we supposed to live in the present day in the light of that future day? And I think Daniel, Peter, John, and Jeremiah emphasize just that, how to live in the meantime. And in a lot of ways, we live in a mean, a very mean time. But it's at this point that we'll have to confine ourselves to unpacking Jeremiah's message, and in particular, really only part of chapter 29. So as not to make this episode longer than need be, for the rest of this time, I can only pack the part about the false prophets in Jeremiah's day and their notions of how to live in their meantime. And this has a practical application, so stay with me. Don't, don't get discouraged or think this is just some history lesson that this doesn't relate. It genuinely, I believe, has a huge relevance to 21st century Christians. So let me pick it up at verse 15 where I stopped reading Jeremiah 29. So Jeremiah 29, 15 and uh, following. You may say, quote, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, end quote. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city. Remember, he's writing to the exiles in Babylon, right? And he's telling them they're going to be there for 70 years. He's, tell, he's told them it's going to be a generation. And, and these are the things that you can expect. 
but he's saying there are there are prophets that you know maintain a different message. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Koliah, and Zedekiah, son of Masaiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. Quote, I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death. Uh, before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the Lord or whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and in my name they have uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it, and I am witness to it, declares the Lord. Tell Shemaiah the Neolamite, quote, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. You sent letters in your own name to all the people of Jerusalem, to the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah, and not Messiah, but Messiah, <laughs> and to all the other priests. You said to Zephaniah, the Lord has appointed you priest in the place of Jehoiada to be charge in the house of the Lord. You should put any maniac who acts like a prophet into the stocks and neck irons. He's, so he's quoting these false prophets that are speaking of Jeremiah the prophet, and they're calling him a maniac. And they're saying, you, sh- you know, you should put the, that prophet into stocks and neck irons. So Why have you not reprimanded Jeremiah from Anathoth, who poses as a prophet among you? He has sent this message to us in Babylon. It will be a long time. Therefore, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. End quote. Zephaniah the priest, however, read the letter to Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, quote, send this message to all the exiles. This is what the Lord says about Shemaiah the Neolamite, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, even though I did not send him and has persuaded you to trust in lies. This is what the Lord says. I will surely punish Shemaiah the Neolamite and his descendants. He will have no one left among his people nor will he see good things I will do for my people, declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against me. Okay, I know that's a lot, and that might be confusing to you if you haven't read that chapter in a long time or ever. But let me just say this. In light of what, what, what I just read, to make this chapter, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, about our own prosperity... You know, I you know I have plans for you to prosper you, and and I'm going to answer all your prayers. Kind of that prosperity, that may be the precise opposite of what God said to the Jews through Jeremiah. I mean, these other so-called prophets and Jeremiah, they were preaching antithetical sermons. They were contradicting each other. <clears throat> Either Jeremiah is right; they're going in for seventy years, and they should settle down. Or those prophets were preaching the truth, and they're going to get out in a very short amount of time. Jeremiah said, settle down, have a family, pray for Babylonians, and make a difference while you're there. These other prophets were preaching something 
a lot more fun, right? Fight back. God will give you victory. It's just a brief setback. You'll be coming home soon. So let's, let's back up a little bit. Why did God deport them to Babylon in the first place? Well, he was judging them for their centuries of sin. I mean, he warned them over and over what would happen if they didn't get it right. And now the cup of judgment is full. They're going to Babylon. But evidently also aimed at rehab. Let's call it rehabilitation. It wasn't just punishment retribution, but there was some rehabilitation that was going on. Evidently, he aimed to humble and teach them to serve him in a foreign land and to use them to serve the foreigners in that land. He put them in less than ideal circumstances, listen, to learn how to follow him when everything wasn't handed to them on a silver platter. I mean, we never seem to serve him very well in the best of circumstances. Have you noticed that? Adam and Eve didn't do so swimmingly perfect in the, gar- in the Garden of Eden. The Jews, once they finished fighting their way into the promised land, they pretty much fell off the wagon as soon as things got a little easier for them. Uh, Jesus taught and said, you know, woe to the rich and blessed are the poor. So, I think the purpose of Babylon, in addition to retribution, was to rehabilitate them and reorient them to see their place in the world as as people who affect the world, as missionaries. I mean, he wasn't trying to harm them, like he said to Jeremiah. He wasn't trying to harm them, but to help them become the uninfected but infectious people he intended them to be. I mean, New Testament writers, especially John and Peter, picked up on this in their writings to remind us to do the same things. They said we're aliens and strangers in a foreign land too. And I think God expects us to embrace the challenge of living in Babylon as what I would call servant subversives. I mean, he promises that if we'll live into that identity that's when we have hope in a future. So Jeremiah's promise of hope was, he wasn't telling them to claim or expect prosperity, but it was a promise based on the condition that we bring shalom to Babylon. And if we bring shalom to Babylon, we'll get it back. So I'm going to pack that idea some more next time. But for now, let me just talk you know, about the message of the false prophets and how I see it as analogous to today's prosperity promisers. I mean, I I just can't help but notice uh, some uncanny similarities between the two. Their message in Jeremiah's day was, all will be well, You'll, you'll be coming home soon. Problem was, they lied. God was not speaking through them and always was not going to be well, at least not in the short run. It wasn't going to be two years. It was going to be 70 years. The most prominent of these false prophets, I didn't name him yet. We didn't read about it yet, but it was a guy named Hananiah. And I think we have countless Hananiahs prophesying in the very same lie that that, uh, prophesied prosperity in our day. 
I mean, claim your victory. God always gives us what we want. We Christians, if we just live right and pray right and do right, everything's going to work out right for us. I mean, that's just, not only is that shallow, but it's also false. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is on the short list of theme verses for, for teaching like that. These teachers and prophets, they make a good living merchandising this kind of false hope. These guys prosper off telling others that they'll prosper. In my observation, the only ones who do prosper are the preachers of prosperity. But their message and their dreams, besides being false, are are destructive. And as long as the people in Jeremiah's day thought that they might be going home at any time, it it wouldn't make any sense to engage in some sort of committed, faithful life in Babylon. I mean, why would they try to bless Babylon when they're only going to be there for a minute? So this, I think, is the mentality of a lot of people today who feel like God is going to judge Babylon, our world, which he is going to judge Babylon. Read Revelation about that. But they also believe that he's going to take us out of here any day now. So what's the point of serving our world today? What's the point of trying to bless Babylon? Are we called to bless Babylon? I think we are. And, and the, the message of our present day uh, prophets of prosperity is miracles on demand. And when you live right, everything works out. I mean, it, it reminds me of a, kind of a one-hour TV drama where all, all everybody's problems are solved and everyone gets along in the end. Don't get me wrong. Of course, God still does miracles and he, he does work all things for the good of those who love him. But a lot of what he works out is in the next world. Uh, after Babylon is gone and the new, test, uh, the new Jerusalem is our new home. So this false hope, I might want to call it Hananiah's hope. I mean, think about this. Rejecting the prophets that come from Babylon, you know, the Babylonian prophets, that's a no-brainer. People, you know, the pagan prophets, that's, I mean, that's easy to, to, to ferret out, right? But these peace and prosperity prophets were fellow Jews. They were f- fellow Jews of Jeremiah. See, it's the ones from our own camp that get an, un- I don't know, unsuspecting and vulnerable hearing from, from people, uh, from Christians. I mean, they must be right, right? They've got a website and they quote verses from the Bible and everything. But yeah, they promise relentless vic- victory, no suffering, economic abundance, surefire formulas that if we follow them to the T, we're always going to get our prayers answered in the way that we'd hoped. And, and just things always just kind of fall together for the faithful Christian. And these are not necessarily the teachings of the New Testament. I mean, each era has its own brand of false prophets. And all of them have their own seed of truth. There's a seed of truth. I mean, it wouldn't be believable if there wasn't a seed of truth in it. But in my view, it's this Hananiah school of the prophets that's the most dangerous and damaging in our time. I, I mean it. And I'm not just talking about the most obvious ones who promise money and fame, health and wealth. Not just the ones with the $5,000 suits on TV and, and, and fly around in their uh, 
their jets to, you know, in between their mansions. But there are some, a, a lot more subtle forms of it in most circles of what I want to think of, what I think of as sanitized Christianity, where the Bible is re- reduced to a promise book and all believers are more like entitled receivers than empowered givers, you know, of the goods and the grace of God. And then I, I hear it among, you know, faithful Christians and this kind of shallow, it may not be as obviously false and evil, uh, but it's more of a shallow idea of what uh, Christianity really is. I'm not just talking about the most outlandish prosperity promoters, in other words, but a lot of mainstream preachers, well-meaning shepherds who, you know, they want to bring something soothing to uh, weak and fearful sheep, but their message is more akin to Hananiah than Jeremiah. But the fact remains that the idea that Babylon serves us, or that if we have enough faith, we'll conquer Babylon, it's pretty much of a narcissistic myth. So in the chapter just before this one, chapter 28 of Jeremiah, that's to symbolize uh, the judgment that was coming. God tells Jeremiah to wear this ox yoke around his neck while he's prophesying. To symbolize, you know, they're going into captivity and have a a yoke around their neck. I'm really glad that the Lord hasn't, at least to date, asked me to do something so radical as that. But this prophet Hananiah, he comes up to Jeremiah while he's prophesying, and he rips it off his neck and he breaks it in two, claiming that in two years God would rescue the Jews from Babylon and their prosperity and all would be restored. You gotta love the dramatic bravado. And, and and when I read that, I think that's that's like a lot of preachers. Some, you know, unwittingly adrenalize people who have itching ears with false hopes. And in you gotta know, brothers and sisters, bluster and bravado are not the same as biblical. They're not always on the same page as the Bible. And, and, you know, I have to admit that two years sounds a lot better than 70 years. And I, I might have gone for it if I had been in Jeremiah's day. I don't know. But these false hopes would have kept them from getting engaged in the culture there. Do you see that? I mean, you're going to be leaving, leaving in two years, so don't unpack. You'll be safely at home before you know it. Jeremiah is lying to you. Fight back and you'll win. God always gives the victory. I could just go on and on about this, but the thing to remember is that we're exiles, happy exiles. I'm a happy exile, immersed in God's goodness, always taken care of by our Father and and joint heirs with Christ, but we are exiles, strangers in this world. Jesus said, we're in this world, we're not of it. And we're here not to just enjoy Babylon's benefits. I mean, we're here as heaven citizens, right? To work and to pray toward a shift in the culture of Babylon, our Babylon, and to reach Babylonians. I mean, we're here to bring shalom. I'll unpack that another time. But we're here to to bring shalom to Babylon. His kingdom come. You know this. His kingdom come and his will be done in 
Where? In Babylon, as it is in heaven. Okay, that's, that's enough for now. Next time, we're going to look at Jeremiah's actual marching orders and what kind of prosperity that he does promise and, and when he promises it'll come. We'll talk about <clears throat> what we can legitimately expect from God and, and when we can expect it to come. And I'm going to share my take on that notoriously overpreached passage of verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. And my take may be different than what you might have heard, but I suspect that if that is the case, it's better than what you suspect. While I'm no friend of super faith, prosperity, promising preaching, And I don't think this verse is either, frankly. I think you'll find that there's something even truer and better than that. And we'll talk about how even though we have a Babylonian zip code, we're not supposed to retreat from it or to hide out in Christian ghettos. We're missionaries armed with God's shalom. We're going to look at the difference between a Christian subculture and a Christ-following counterculture. And ultimately how, in the meantime, we can be and should be servant subversives. Let's go, let's go.